Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, If you've been listening to our show for a long time, you might have noticed the uncanny number of just terrible tragedies we've covered that have happened right around Christmas. There's the Iroquois Theater Fire and the Richmond Theater Fire and the Christmas tree ship that sank in Lake Michigan and the disappearance of the Sodder children after their family home caught fire. Uh, We would probably see a similar pattern of tragedies if we picked just any random date and looked at the stuff from right around it. But the proximity to major holidays for all of these always just makes them seem particularly sad. There are so many others of these that we've never talked about on the show, but while I was looking through our listener suggestion list to try to figure out what I wanted to talk about next, one in particular struck me. It is the Italian Hall disaster, which was suggested by listener Mark long enough ago at this point that it's in the upper third of the list, which means it was a long time ago. This disaster happened in Michigan on December 24th, 1913, in a town that's now known as Calumet, but was called Red Jacket at the time. For some reason, all of those prior tragedies that I listed off a minute ago are all episodes that I researched. (laughs) So when I found this one, I told Holly I didn't know if I had the stomach for another Christmas tragedy, but even as I tried to move on to other topics, I just couldn't stop thinking about this one. So I decided to go ahead and do it Uh, just not to have the episode come out right around the anniversary of when it actually happened, which this year is roughly at the same time as both Christmas and Hanukkah. You just keep picking those sad ones, Tracy. I know. Meanwhile, I'm over here like, you'll goat. The Italian Hall disaster happened during a strike in Michigan's copper country, which lasted from the summer of 1913 to the early spring of 1914. And copper country is on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. That's the northernmost part of the state, particularly concentrated on the Keweenaw Peninsula. Native people knew that there was copper in the area long before this, but people of European descent learned about it in the 1840s. That discovery, kind of in quotation marks, is often credited to Samuel O. Knapp or someone who worked for him. In 1847, they found pits that Native people had excavated for copper, possibly going all the way back to the prehistoric mound-building peoples who lived in the area. These ancient pits became the sites of many of Michigan's first underground copper mines. As Michigan's copper mining industry grew, it had a lot of the same issues as other mining industries in other parts of the world. The industry operated on a system of paternalism. Copper country was remote, so mining companies built entire towns to try to attract and retain workers. If you worked in a copper mine, it was very likely that your home, your children's school, the hospital, the stores, and everything else was owned by the mine. Although the mine companies usually framed this as a mark of their generosity and care toward their workers, it was also a way to keep people in line. If you got in trouble at work, the mine could restrict the services and facilities that you could access in your off hours. If you got fired, the mine could evict you from your home. And if you were killed on the job, it was entirely possible that your family would be evicted immediately so that your home could be used by your replacement. Mining in general was also very dangerous, and copper mining was particularly so. On average, every week someone died in Michigan's copper mines, and at least 10 other people were seriously injured. Every year, roughly one out of every 200 copper mine workers died. 
Apart from these safety issues, working conditions in the mine were just difficult. The mines had to be very deep in order to get to the copper, and without electricity, the illumination was mostly from candles and lamps. So workers were deep underground in almost total darkness for 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week. Pay was also very low, particularly in the jobs that mostly involved physical labor, such as trammers who pushed loaded carts of ore through the mine, generally along a track. In addition to being low, the pay for these jobs was often unfair. Trammers were paid by the pound for how much material they moved, but most of the mines did not have scales. So their pay basically boiled down to a manager's best guess at how much they had hauled based on, like, a visual assessment. This combination of factors meant that most of the people working underground in Michigan's copper mines were recent immigrants to the United States, and they came from several parts of Europe, including England, Finland, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Poland, Croatia, and Slovenia. Co-workers often didn't speak the same language, and job assignments were made by ethnicity, with some ethnicities disproportionately getting the least prestigious jobs. For example, Cornish immigrants often became managers, with Germans and Scandinavians also holding more prestigious jobs. Meanwhile, Italians, Finns, and Croatians tended to work in jobs that were primarily manual labor, such as being trammers. The diversity presented a challenge when organizers started trying to establish labor unions in Copper Country in the 1880s. It wasn't uncommon at all for workers in one mine to speak at least five or six different languages among them. The Western Federation of Miners, which was established in 1893, proved to be particularly adept at organizing people from different ethnic groups who had different backgrounds and cultures and spoke different languages. The WFM brought in organizers who could speak to all all of these different groups. By the 19-teens, membership in the Western Federation of Miners was really growing among Michigan's copper miners. Copper was in high demand thanks to things like increasing use of electric power, the growing automobile industry, and other industrialization. But this increased demand was not trickling down to better pay for the workers in the mines. On top of that, mine managers were increasingly focused on the idea of scientific management or using scientific principles to improve workplace efficiency and reduce the need for labor. One innovation that came out of this and was widely criticized by mine workers was the one-man drill. Before this point, the drills used in copper mining required two people to operate. Workers thought that the one-man drill was going to cause workers to lose their jobs because the idea was that the mining companies could cut their workforce by half, not that they could run twice as many drills. Yeah, it also seemed inherently less safe to go from working as a team of two people to working all by yourself. People were like, if something goes wrong, there won't even be anybody around who can come and help me. Drill operators were regarded as skilled laborers in the mines, and before this point, they had more often aligned themselves with management when there were labor disputes. But as the one-man drill threatened their livelihood and safety, they started to align themselves with the people whose pay and working conditions tended to be poorer. Mine managers knew that their workers were deeply frustrated by all of this. On July 5th, 1913, Charles Lawton, general manager of Quincy Mining Company, said, quote, I do not think it would be hard at this time for the WFM to call a strike with a hurrah from one end of the copper country to the other. The call for strike came not long after, and we're going to get into that after we first pause for a sponsor break. By the spring of 1913... 
About 9,000 copper mine workers in Michigan had joined the Western Federation of Miners. This made the union large enough to try to negotiate on these workers' behalf. Their demands included better pay, with an increase to $3.50 a day for underground mine workers. That was up from between $1.50 and $2.50. They also wanted the workday reduced to eight hours and for the mines to stop the changeover to the one-man drill. The workers also wanted a formal grievance procedure and recognition of their union as their collective bargaining unit. On July 14, 1913, the Western Federation of Miners sent letters to Michigan's mine managers, including Calumet and Hecla General Manager James McNaughton. Calumet and Hecla employed about 2,100 people, and Red Jacket was one of its company towns. This letter outlined the WFM's demands and also stated, quote, failure to answer will be taken as proof that you are not willing to have the matters settled peacefully. The mining companies naturally found this language threatening, especially since some of the WFM's previous strikes had involved violence on both sides. The mining companies were also deeply opposed to the idea of negotiating with the union at all, and their general perception was that if they made any kind of reply to this letter, that would be taken as evidence that they recognized the union as valid in some way. So neither McNaughton nor any of the other mine managers answered this letter. So on July 23rd, copper workers went on strike. The union reported that 10,000 men had joined the strike, while the mining companies reported that that number was more like 3,000. Regardless, at least for a time, the striking workers totally shut down mine operations, both by refusing to work themselves and by physically blocking non-striking workers from getting into the mines. Immediately, mine owners reported that the striking miners were likely to be violent and they asked for help. Governor Woodbridge Ferris started ordering the National Guard go to the peninsula's mining towns starting at about 10 a.m. on the morning of the 24th. There is an odd disparity in the accounts from the early days of the strike. Accounts from mine operators and the National Guard report that the striking workers were terrorizing the rest of the population and describe the situation as total chaos and lawlessness. But in the first weeks of the strike, there were no fatalities on either side. The National Guard were slowly recalled starting in mid-August, and in the end, the only National Guardsman killed in connection to his duty in Copper Country had died because he was kicked by a horse. Yeah, this is contrary to a lot of the previous episodes based on, like, the late 19th, early 20th century when the National Guard has been called out. Like, in almost every story other than this one, that has led to extreme violence and many deaths among the people who, in theory, the National Guard was being sent to protect. So this is an outlier in terms of all that. Meanwhile... The mine companies didn't really have a lot of incentive to negotiate with the miners or to recognize the union. Most of the mining companies had a surplus of unsold copper and they had plenty of cash on hand, so they weren't in dire straits to get this resolved. At the same time, though, they didn't want to stop production entirely, so they hired replacement workers. They started recruiting newly arrived immigrants at port cities on the coast and paid for their train ticket to Michigan, which was then deducted from their pay once they started working. The mine companies also hired several detective agencies, including Waddle Mahone Detective Agency, to help break the strike. They protected the replacement workers and generally harassed and intimidated the strikers. Most of these men were armed, and some were given formal authority by being deputized under the local sheriff. 
So while it's certainly true that there were some instances of violence on the part of the striking workers, we're going to get to some of that in just a moment, these seemed to be individual people's actions, which were not authorized by the union. Meanwhile, the mining companies had partnered with detective agencies to hire an armed force of strikebreakers, some of whom had been deputized by the sheriff. On August 14, 1913, two striking miners were killed after at least six strikebreakers opened fire on the boarding house where they lived in Seaverville, Michigan. Two different miners had been walking back to the boarding house on a path that crossed over company property. Deputies had told them to turn around, and they didn't because they didn't speak English and didn't understand what was being said. When deputies arrived at the boarding house to arrest them for having done this, they refused to go, That is when the strike breakers opened fire through the windows. At least two other people in the house were injured but recovered after this. This led to a coroner's inquest that required five different interpreters because the witnesses spoke five languages. Four of the strike breakers were convicted, a fifth was acquitted, and a sixth fled before the trial was over. On Labor Day of 1913, Margaret Fazekas, who was 14, was shot in the head while picketing after a fight broke out between strikers and strikebreakers. She did recover from that. Although a deputized strikebreaker was arrested for the shooting, a grand jury declined to charge him with any crime. On December 7, 1913, three men were murdered at a boarding house in Painesdale, Michigan, which was owned by Thomas Daly. And Daly was one of the victims. Several men boarding with Daly were working in the mines during the strike. WFA member James Huda confessed to the crime, and others were also charged, but Huda refused to testify against them. This was definitely an incident in which striking miners instigated the violence, in this case against men who were working in the mines in spite of the strike. Also in December, supporters of Michigan's copper mining industry formed the Citizens Alliance. This was another organization that was meant to try to break the strike and to harass and intimidate the striking workers. This organization was funded by mine management, and about 8,000 people joined it. So by the time the winter holidays approached in 1913, the situation in Copper Country was tense. Apart from the multiple instances of violence, striking miners had been out of work for about five months. They and their families were mostly living on donated food and financial assistance from the union, although that money was running out. So Annie Clemming, head of the Women's Auxiliary of the Western Federation of Miners, decided to hold a Christmas party for the children of the striking miners with the hope of raising their spirits. Clemming, whose name you'll also see sometimes spelled as Clemens, uh, there's, it's a, it appears in writing in a number of different ways, she was known as Big Annie because she was more than six feet tall. She was the daughter of Slovenian immigrants and was married to a Croatian miner. She had been extremely active in the strike up to this point, including carrying an American flag in the Union's demonstrations and parades. In one of these parades, she was threatened by an armed deputy, and she told him, quote, kill me. If this flag won't protect me, I'll die with it. For this party, she solicited donations with the hope that each child attending could get a small gift, like a hat or a pair of mittens or a piece of fruit or candy. The venue for the party was the Italian Hall in Red Jacket, which, as we said earlier, is now called Calumet. 
The Italian Hall was a multi-use building that belonged to the Italian Mutual Benefit Society. Its lower floors housed a saloon and an Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company store, and upstairs was a space that could be used as a banquet hall, a meeting room, or a theater. It was in the upstairs space that between 500 and 700 people gathered for a Christmas party on Christmas Eve 1913. During this party, somebody came into the hall and shouted, Fire! Annie Clemick didn't see or smell any smoke, and so she told people to stay calm and to stay at the party. Other people probably did this as well, but this cry of fire spread through the crowd, and people panicked and started trying to rush through the door and down the stairs. The first few dozen people that tried to flee the Italian hall were able to get out, but at some point someone tripped and fell, and this started a chain reaction, with other people who were also trying to get out falling over and onto the people below. The fire department was just across the street, and firefighters were on the scene almost immediately. But the crush of people at the foot of the stairs was so high and so tightly packed that they couldn't start a rescue operation from below. They had to climb up a fire escape, one that people in the party either hadn't known about or hadn't thought about in the panic to try to escape. And they had to work from above, slowly removing people from this steep staircase that had just become completely impassable. Exact counts vary because of discrepancies in record-keeping, but at least 73 people died, mostly from being crushed to death or suffocating. More than half of them were Finnish immigrants or people of Finnish descent. About 60 of those victims were children. There was no fire. And we're going to talk about the aftermath of this tragedy after we take a little break and hear from one of our sponsors. Immediately after the tragedy in the Italian hall, reports started to spread that this had been a deliberate act of violence against the striking miners. Multiple witnesses say they saw the person who falsely shouted fire and that it wasn't a miner, but was somebody wearing a Citizens Alliance button on his coat. Early reports placed Waddell Mahone strikebreaker Edward Manley in the stairwell after the incident. Waddell Mahone's sources said that he had gone into the stairwell to try to help. But he was never questioned, and he disappeared from Calumet not long after. Some deathbed confessions were also reported in the 1980s and 1990s, but they were second and third hand. None of those were ever verified. The disaster immediately became national news, including a front-page story in the New York Times on Christmas Day. But newspapers in Michigan carried distinctly different accounts depending on whether they supported the striking workers or the mine management. For example, a Finnish-American socialist newspaper called Tuomias or Worker published a bilingual Finnish and English edition on Christmas Day. And that included reports that a man with a Citizens Alliance badge and his hat pulled down had yelled fire. A headline in this paper on the 26th translated to 83 murdered. Some of the newspaper's staff were arrested on December 27th of 1913 for, quote, causing a riot because of these claims. The newspaper was shut down, at least temporarily, and it eventually moved its headquarters to another state. Meanwhile, the Calumet News reported on how the Citizens Alliance and security guards from Calumet and Hecla were part of the rescue, while not mentioning all the miners who were also part of it. Papers also reported that WFM President Charlie Moyer was financially benefiting from the strike in some way, with absolutely no evidence for that claim. Moyer, to be clear, had a checkered past. 
He had served time in prison in Illinois after another man's confession implicated him in a string of crimes, including a home invasion and a department store burglary. He was also implicated in a December 1905 bombing that killed former Governor Frank Stunenberg of Idaho, although that case was dismissed after the other accused men were all acquitted. People also questioned his leadership in the Copper Country strike. He had authorized it even though the people at the WFM headquarters were opposed to it. But after the Italian Hall incident, Moyer avoided placing blame on any particular person. Instead, he began sending numerous telegrams calling for an investigation, saying that there was enough about the tragedy that was suspicious that it warranted an extra look. The local sheriff and several people from mine management and the Citizens Alliance told Moyer to stop writing these telegrams and to issue a statement that would absolve the Citizens Alliance of any blame. Moyer refused. In his account, the sheriff said something to him along the lines of, then I can't protect you anymore. Later that night, several men attacked Moyer and he was shot in the back when a pistol discharged as he was being beaten with it. The men dragged him to the Portage Lake Bridge with a bullet still lodged in his back and threatened to throw him off of it. And then they took him to the train depot and put him on a train bound for Chicago, threatening to kill him if he ever returned. No one was ever prosecuted for any of this. On Christmas Day, Finnish photographer John William Nara took pictures of the Italian Hall, which continue to be a primary source of information about what the scene was like in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy. The coroner held a three-day inquest, but didn't rule on a cause of death for the people who had died in the incident. During the investigation, witnesses were required to hear and answer questions in English, regardless of what language they actually spoke, and the questioning seemed more oriented toward clearing the Citizens' Alliance of Suspicion than uncovering the truth of what actually happened. A grand jury that had been convened to investigate strike crimes also issued no indictments in the disaster or in the attack on Moyer, although it indicted Moyer for his organizing on behalf of the miners. Congressional hearings into the disaster didn't really go anywhere. As was the case with so many other mass tragedies that we've talked about on the show before, Calumet was not prepared to cope with a disaster of this scale. There wasn't a morgue large enough to help manage all the bodies. There weren't enough coffins, especially child-sized coffins. Help had to be brought in from surrounding communities to try to manage it all. Most of the funerals took place on December 28th, with all of the churches involved coordinating to allow one massive funeral procession through town. That procession drew about 20,000 spectators. Miners had dug into the frozen ground for mass graves for most of the victims, with 22 buried in a Catholic cemetery and 44 in a Protestant cemetery. The rest of the victims were buried in family plots. Although mine management and the Citizens Alliance raised money for a victim's fund, Moyer and the WFA refused to take it. They said they did not want money, they wanted justice. Moyer also said that the union would bury its own dead. Although the strike didn't officially end until April of 1914, it was more or less over after this. Henry Ford was offering people $5 a day to work on his automotive assembly lines for work that was far less dangerous than working in the copper mines. So a lot of people moved to Detroit to work there. We actually have several episodes on Henry Ford in our archive for folks who would like to know more about the nuance on all of that. After the Western Federation of Miners voted to cut aid to the striking workers in the spring of 1914, those who hadn't already left for other industries voted to go back to work. 
They got a small pay increase in an eight-hour workday, but otherwise, none of their demands were met. This disaster was also part of the end of the Western Federation of Miners. The union lost more than half of its membership between 1913 and 1916, and the Michigan strike depleted its treasury almost entirely. In 1916, the union reformed as the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. That union was actually part of our episode on the Bisbee deportation. Apart for the calls for justice that went unanswered, in the immediate aftermath of this tragedy, the people of Calumet seemed to mostly want to move on. There was no coverage of the disaster's one-year anniversary in local newspapers, and it wasn't something that seemed to be widely discussed. That started to change after Ella Reeves Bloor, known as Mother Bloor, published her autobiography, We Are Many, in 1940. She had been one of the organizers that was involved in this strike, and her book included an account of the disaster. That account inspired Woody Guthrie to write his song, 1913 Massacre, about the incident. He put out that song in 1941. Because the investigation into the disaster was handled so sloppily, it is still not clear exactly what happened. And some of the details that have become widely remembered are not actually supported by the evidence. In some accounts, including Woody Guthrie's song lyrics, supporters of the mine bosses physically stopped people from leaving the hall, or they laughed as children fell and died. One widely held piece of misinformation is that the doors out of the hall opened the wrong way, something that was absolutely true in some of the other disasters that we have discussed, but that was not the case in the Italian hall. There are actually photographs that show the doors opening outward. It seems very likely that the person who shouted fire was opposed to the strike and the striking workers and wanted to ruin the party. But some people go so far as to conclude that their intent wasn't just to harass the miners and their families and to spoil their good time, but that it was intended to create a fatal stampede on purpose. Because there was never a thorough investigation, it's really hard to say that conclusively. Big Annie Clemenc eventually moved to Chicago, remarried, and had a daughter. Her descendants did not know about her work as a labor organizer or the Italian Hall disaster when they were asked about it in more recent years. She has since been inducted into the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame and Labor's International Hall of Fame. Michigan's copper mines went into decline. They started closing in the 1960s, with the last closing down in 1995. A law passed in 2004 allowed mining to resume in the state, though, and Eagle Mine was the first one to open under this new law in 2014. Some people point to the Italian Hall disaster as the beginning of the downward trend in the industry that led to its temporary total shutdown, but there was really a lot more to it than that. Michigan's deep underground mines were expensive and dangerous to operate, and in the 19-teens and beyond, they were facing increasing competition from the mines in the West and the Southwest, which were a lot cheaper to operate. The Italian Hall was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1980, but then it was later removed. It was torn down in 1984, with its sandstone entry arch remaining as a memorial. For years, that archway had a sign that read, quote, Michigan Historic Site, Italian Hall. On December 24, 1913, area copper miners had been on strike for five months. The miners were fighting for better pay, shortened workdays, safer working conditions, and union recognition. That day, during a Yuletide party for the striking miners and their families, someone yelled fire. Although there was no fire, 73 persons died while attempting to escape down a stairwell that had doors that opened inward. Over half of those who died were children between the ages of 6 and 10. 
The perpetrator of this tragedy was never identified. The strike ended in April 1914. That wording was edited to remove the reference to the inward opening doors in 2013. In 2012, a Michigan Technological University professor and students were part of an archaeological study at the site of the Italian Hall. This included ground-penetrating radar work to determine the building's original boundaries. The radar itself was actually on loan from the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community Tribal Historic Preservation Office, and it was run by the office's archaeologist, who also donated his time. On Christmas Eve 2018, a granite monument was dedicated at the site of the disaster, and it lists the names of the victims. This site is part of the Keweenaw National Historical Park, and today the Calumet Rotary Club puts luminaries at the site each Christmas Eve. There is one for each victim. For folks who want more detail on all of this, Steve Leto has written books about it, and there are some talks and articles by him in the show notes for this episode on our website. Uh, I have a couple of pieces of listener mail that are overall on a a lighter note because they're about television. They're short, so I'm going to read both of them. Uh, The first one is about television, but it's also about a disaster. It is, this is from Tatum. Tatum says, hi there, longtime listener, but this is my first time writing in. I just thought your listeners might want to know that the Netflix series The Crown featured the Abervan mining disaster in a recent episode, season three, episode three. As I was watching the episode, I started to realize that I knew where this story was going due to having heard your episode from November of 2017. So if any of your listeners would like to see what the disaster may have looked like as it took place, I would recommend checking that out. Uh, So thank you, Tatum, for that. Um, Tatum went on to say some kind things about us, but I, I don't know that every single person needs to hear all of that. Yes, we talked about that disaster In November of 2017, like that email says, that's a little newer than we typically do for Saturday Classics. Uh, But if folks watched The Crown and thought, I didn't know anything about this disaster, that is something they could find in our archive. Um, And then the other quick email about television is from Emily. Emily says, I just wanted to write a quick thank you for your episode on Matthew Hopkins because it combined two of my favorite things, your podcast and the book Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. If you're not familiar, there's a character in it named Shadwell who is a seemingly self-appointed witchfinder sergeant. I was delighted to know that his asking at least two characters how many nipples have you got was inspired by the real-life weirdness slash terribleness of Hopkins. Thanks again for hours of entertainment, Emily. Thank you, Emily, for this note. I love the book Good Omens. It's been so long since I've read it that, as with many books, the details on a lot of it are very fuzzy. So I only got caught up on watching the Good Omens series that came out recently after we had recorded that episode. And I was like, oh, yeah, that guy... (laughs) I forgot he was in the book. <laughs> I forgot, too. I uh, It's been a long time since I've revisited that one. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm currently having the same experience watching His Dark Materials, which is a book series that I love, but it's been, oh, more than a decade since I read it, probably. Um, I, I could be, that could be too big of a number. It's been years since I read it, so as I'm watching it, I'm like, is this how the book was? I don't remember. Anyway, uh, that's some historically oriented television. Not His Dark Materials, but the other ones. Uh, for folks to check out if they would like. We are at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. If you would like to send us an email about this or any other episode, that is a new email address if you have not noticed. And we are also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can come to our website, mistinhistory.com, for the show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. 
And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 